You are listening to Microchurches, a podcast for missionaries and leaders living out their God-given calling through this small expression of the church. This podcast is meant to encourage, equip, and contribute to the overall discussion of this smaller way. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. In this series, we are diving deep into the frequently asked questions of microchurches. What are they? Who keeps them accountable? All of the above. But uh, in our last episode, we talked a bit about the nature of the church, the importance of an expansive ecclesiology, and out of that, what microchurches are. In this episode, I want to take a little bit of an unusual detour, and I want to talk about why. Uh, why is this, why this isn't just a viable option or model, but maybe if the, is there something greater here when we're talking about microchurches? And so in this episode, we are privileged to be joined by Brian Sanders, founder of the Underground Network and the author of several books, both on uh, the underground, but also microchurches themselves. So Brian, welcome. Uh, and I would just love to have you share a little bit about yourself. Uh, what's up, man? Um, <clears throat> about myself. Let's see. Well, I just finished watching um, Mr. Magorium's Wonder Emporium again. Did you ever see that film, Tommy? I have not. Okay, you need I'm to check so it out. Well, anyway, he calls himself, he has a number of things that he, he refers to himself and I, I don't know, it's like toy aficionado, wonder generator, and avid shoe wearer. That's his third thing. So I'm kind of thinking about, I don't know, uh, unusual things about myself, but there, there probably really aren't any. I'm kind of obsessed with um, the church and its effectiveness, its usefulness to the world. I'm kind of obsessed with, well, most obsessed and most fascinated just with Jesus. I'd say the longer I, I walk this road of, I guess, what we would call ministry or full-time ministry, I don't know, the more dependent I feel on him, on that one singular initial progenerative relationship, you know, that started it all. Um, and then I guess people, I'm learning to love people more. Um, so maybe Jesus first, um, systems and strategies and things like that. And then it's a, it's a growth thing for me to love people. Although people are also quite fascinating and, um, like maybe the older I get, the more I see just how wonderful and beautiful and complex people are, you know, flaws and all. I have six kids too. I guess it's, it's probably a thing that, that defines me now at some level Four of them are adults. Well, they're, they're adult light. They're adultish. Um, getting there. Yeah, they're, they are. And they're amazing. And that's defined a good, good portion of my life too. But, and then microchurches. Yeah. I mean, we, we've been doing this. I I've been telling more and more stories lately of my own experience of microchurch, you know, not just talking like high level, but just, you know, in the day-to-day -day experience of having microchurches, and it's kind of, it kind of makes you nostalgic. You know, you remember some pretty beautiful, extraordinary times in ordinary situations or ordinary spaces. So that's, that's in my heart too. Well, I mean, please do tell, please do share. Uh, I don't know. 
if there's a story in particular from your microchurch journey that you've been reflecting on a lot more recently, or just any story you want to share of your experience with microchurches and your history of starting and walking with them. Like right now, you want me to share one? Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Seize the oh, day. Man. Carpe diem. Yeah. Well, I was just, I was just remarking to somebody recently, maybe, maybe it was a, it was a, I don't remember seminar or something, but uh, about we we had our weekly gathering in our home, our house church kind of thing was on Thursday nights, and so it came up Thanksgiving one year, and the thought was just like you know do we do we cancel? And we started thinking about a few people that maybe wouldn't have somewhere to go for Thanksgiving, including people from the street. You know, at the time we lived right on Nebraska Avenue. So, you know, we had some friends who were, um, you know, didn't even necessarily have a place to live and certainly wouldn't have had a place, you know, to, to come for Thanksgiving. And I can just, I just remember that being the most, the most incredible. And I've had a lot of amazing, uh, dinner table ministry moments through the years, but just the most incredible time, because all these people came, some of them were, we knew really well. Some we didn't know that well. Some of them were regulars in the house church. Some, and of course, my family was there. Our, the people we lived with were there. And it was just kind of a thing, a typical thing where you say, okay, go around and say something you're thankful for. And people we barely knew just started weeping and, and opening up and saying, I'll tell you what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for this, this, this moment right now. And these people around this table who I don't even know, but you've opened your hearts to me. And it just became this most incredible, vulnerable honest, full of gratitude. And we started, we, we prayed for people. I think someone may have even come to faith or something happened uh, with one person in particular, which was like a turning point in their life spiritually. And this is, this is this, the simplicity of a meal, a table, intentionality, well, in the presence of God, you know, and I, I still, I mean, there, there's no time to go through uh, all the little moments in that night, but it's, it's simple, powerful. It's like, it's evangelism. It's the miraculous. It's belonging. It's friendship. Uh, it's family. Uh, that, that's what microchurches can be, you know, at their best. And, and I, I don't even know if it takes, you know, great skill to pull it off, you know? Anyway, that's just one that was on my mind recently. Well, see, I feel like we could just end the whole podcast right there because that, I mean, why? What If we're wrestling with the question of why microchurches, why should they be taken seriously? That story, I feel like, answers that question in some, um, because there's something beautiful and elegant in its simplicity and just the the openness of just like these small ordinary people and God doing extraordinary things through these ordinary people, I think it's just something that you know we in general have to have to wrestle with. And so, man, thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, yeah, I think you know, I think in general, and I could be wrong about this. I'm not uh, the most well versed person in all this, but we. Uh, I think right now in general, it seems a little bit more trendy to talk about microchurches, to, to be using that language. It seems, and maybe it's not trendy, but it's definitely gotten more popular over the years. And so we went from kind of, 
you know, mega church, multi-site, uh, and now we're kind of talking about getting back to the small. And yet you have been doing this for decades. The underground has been doing this for over a decade. Uh, and so there's, there's something about learning from what you all have done and what we have seen happen through these microchurches that I just think is important for uh, you guys to be in the conversation. And so I think the first thing that comes to my mind as we talk about microchurches is that there is just this little inherent tension that exists when we talk about microchurches. And it's that, you know, we typically equate numbers with success or uh, quality with numbers or something like that. So if a restaurant has a lot of customers or the wait is long, uh, that means it's good. If we see a quote unquote church that has a lot of people, it must be special. God must be at work. And yet here we are talking about being small. And that seems just a little bit counterintuitive to everything we know. So I, I guess just help us think through that mental shift a little bit, if you could. Yeah, it's a, it's a, um, it's a cultural cognitive bias against small things. You know, it's bigger is better is a construct. It's a belief, you know, um, which you could argue it's a fundamental belief to, I don't know, the American enterprise, American project. Um, and yeah, I, th I think it needs to be scrutinized um, from uh, you know a theological perspective. First of all, uh, is that you know does God hold that belief that bigger is better? Um, missiologically, it needs to be scrutinized. You know, is 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 or do our bigger churches or bigger um, expressions of the church more effective? Are they more humane? Are they more just? Uh, do they reach more people? Um, and then just, I don't know what you'd call it, existentially scrutinized? Like, do you, what, what, what is it like aesthetically to experience the church in a bigger environment? You know, is, big, is bigger better in terms of just, I don't know, I, I'm a part of this church and this is how it affects my life. You know, this is how I feel about it. Um, it makes me happy or makes me sad or creates a lot of drama or gives me a lot of joy you know it's just, just kind of the existential question of quality i suppose that needs to be scrutinized and i would i would i would i could make an argument I, I will make an argument that in all three of those those ways that that axiom is false it is proved false um you know when jesus is asked for example to explain the kingdom he most of the time he wants to draw on images of things that are very small. Um, the kingdom is like a seed. The kingdom is like a child. The kingdom is like a penny or a widow. Um, you know, there's, there would have been the same, probably the, the same tension then as now that big religious systems seem to have substance, you know, they seem to be significant because of their size. And that can trick us, you know, it can, it can sort of play a, um, create a mirage, you know, that the God must be there. You know, I think of some, sometimes I think of something like the Ark of the Covenant, which is this tiny little box, you know, this little thing. And supposedly it, it, it was meant to sort of, I don't know, symbolize, if not contain, the glory, the presence of God, you know, he's always 
been fond of small packages, you know, and it, it, it's part of the, it, it is actually part of the paradoxical expression of the greatness of God, that he is big enough to be small, you know, that he's so great that he doesn't have to sort of, I don't know, uh, you know, be some swashbuckling gregarious God that looks big or acts big or fills a room necessarily. I don't know. So theologically, I think that's the case. I mean, missiologically, the data does not bear out that bigger churches do better per capita in terms of evangelism or discipleship um, or even something like justice. You'd think, okay, well, big churches can raise more money. And that, that is a fact, you know, when you're just comparing totals, like summations, this budget is bigger than that budget. But actually, big churches are very expensive to run. So the, the, the margin, the return on investment for a person that gives money to a big church, it just all goes to the running of the big church. And yeah, you're going to see 50 people come to Christ in a, in a 10,000 person church every single week. Uh, but that's, that's, that's taking 10,000 people. And one statistic I read, one number I read was it costs about a million dollars uh, invested or spent or given by a Christian in the U S to, to create one baptism. And that's, so it's very expensive. It's very, you know, cost prohibitive almost to do ministry the way we've done it. Uh, and then experientially, I mean, if we, if, tell me if, if I ask you the question, if I ask anyone the question, like, tell me your, your most profound experience of the church. I, I just feel like people will, most of the time they'll relate something very small, very human, uh, where the church showed up for them when they, the death of a loved one or going through something with their children or, you know, like people came around them and they, they'd be able to name actual names and faces and our most profound experiences with the church are not necessarily in, in some big meeting, you know, but we keep asking this question you know, or, or we keep assuming that a bigger church is a better church. I mean, if you have 50 people, you would think, well, surely a hundred people is a bigger, a better church, you know, or if you have a hundred people in your church, you think, well, surely a 200 person church is better than a hundred. It's just an untested assumption. Uh, and I don't think it's true. And, and that's just my opinion, but, but no matter what uh, your opinion might be, the listener's opinion might be, really what we're asking is this question is it's called the Goldilocks principle. It's like in, in, um, you know, in lots of fields, they have this kind of Goldilocks question. Um, you know, social psychology has it early childhood development development has an example of it. Statistics has an example of it. Uh, astrophysics is a really interesting example where it's like the, the rare earth theory, you know, essentially like if the earth is a little bit closer to the sun, life is impossible. But it's a little bit farther away, life is impossible. The amount of hydrogen in the atmosphere, that kind of thing is like a little bit more, life is impossible. A little bit less, life is impossible. You know, it's just right. You know, the Goldilocks story, that just right kind of thing. And it's a question I think we should ask. What is the kind of best size for a church? You know, because is there a top? So even if you think a 200 person church is better than a 50 person church. Okay. But then, but then what is the limit? You know, what, what is, what is the just right kind of size? And I, I think it's just a really good provocative question to ask. 
And whatever you come to, it's not infinite, right? So there's got to be a cap. There's got to be a top level. And I, I think we can look at churches that are 20,000 people or something like that and just think, this, this probably isn't the best expression of the church. When they say that person up there on stage is my pastor, which is such an interesting biblical word to apply to a leader of 20,000 people. You know, it's, it's problematic even just, you know, the, the nomenclature doesn't work. It doesn't fit, you know. Um, but I, I don't mean to be critical of that. I just, I just, I just mean to say, like, what, what's, what's the just right size, you know, where you experience the church as something real and human, but it's also big enough to deliver some things, you know, deliver teaching or deliver, I don't know, resources maybe to you, you or your family or whatever. Um, <clears throat> I think it's a really important question. Yeah, in some ways, was it Mike Breen? Was it, I forgot which book of it of his was, Building a this Multiplying Culture. I don't know. I'm going to get it all wrong. Mike Breen, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I did read the book, though. Uh, and one of the things that he talked about was just like the nature of, you know, because churches can be so big, it's really hard to disciple people in those areas. Like you need something small. And because because really, what is discipleship, if not uh, invitation and challenge? And you can't do that in this bigger context, this bigger setting. And so you need something small. And maybe what I think is fascinating about the underground or even this conversation around microchurches is that we're saying, yes, and actually that something small is closer to what it means to be the church. And so I think that's just that's an interesting little shift that uh, that we're making here. Um, and, and even like, uh, you know, to reference another book uh, and kind of lead into the, another question that we have, uh, I remember reading uh, Mark Driscoll's uh, Confessions of a Reformation Reverend or something like that a number of years ago. Uh, and he, he kind of looks at Acts 2 and looks at the moment where the, the Holy Spirit falls on the church and, you know, 3,000 people are added to that the whatever in that to the number that day and he says see there you go that's the case for a mega church and all these people want to talk about being small but the first church was a mega church or something like that uh and there are people who kind of scoff at this idea that maybe small isn't bad uh and that there is a case to be made for taking these small expressions of the church seriously and so i would just love to hear you sort of yeah we kind of talked about it a little bit, but make more of a case for like, why should these small expressions of the church be taken seriously? Like, why should we have to, why should we wrestle and seriously consider microchurches as something that, I don't know, maybe is the best, is, is us at our best, if you will? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's not, it's not mutually exclusive. Uh, and to pit them against each other is, um, well, it's just immature. You know, um, you know, I, I was just as you said that about the early church, I was thinking of maybe Joseph Meyer's stuff about, you know, the life of Jesus. He had 12, but he also had these three that were very close to him. And then he also had about 70 ish that included women that followed him pretty much anywhere. If he was nearby, they would come, you know, um, and then you had the masses, these crowds. And so like layers of community or an expression of people, you know, like. Alan's thing about centered set. So wherever Jesus goes, you've got these kind of people that are really close, people that are being discipled, people that are, you know, part of it. And then the masses that are, that are on looking, you know, um, and probably the church is always going to express itself that way. You know, these sort of concentric circles. Um, 
So it's not that we have to pit one against the other, but, you know, I, I guess I would, I would make the argument that um, we need to also allow when the church is, when, when a group of people are actually functioning as the church, we need to, to discard or, sh or shed some of our preconceptions about the, the definition of that word and allow for a more biblical um, conception. So a lot of things that we weren't calling church necessarily because they didn't have a building or they didn't have a marquee or a pastor or a budget or be a part of a denomination or something like that. We were saying, well, that isn't the church. It's just a small group or a missional community or something like that. Uh, and I think we just need to, to be honest, you know, and call, call them what they are, call a spade a spade, because if, because if God looks down, so to speak, and he says, oh, look, this is one of my, one of my people, it's one of my churches, you know, and he's sort of tending the lampstand, uh, that image from Revelation 1, Jesus pouring in oil and trimming the wick and tending the lampstands, you know, then it is it is what it is, you know, and it's up to him to define what his, what his church is and the function of his church and not us and not our institutions or our history or whatever. So it, it involves a little bit of imagination too, like um, being able to see that the church is, is freer and is functioning maybe outside, coloring a little bit outside the lines that we've seen before. I don't really totally remember your, what was your question? Now I'm just sort of rambling. What was your initial question? And maybe I'm not answering. <laughs> yeah. Just like helping people for like when people scoff at the idea of being small and kind of, you were talking about how we pit them against each other and how that's kind of immature, but yeah, like Jesus has the three, but then he also had the, the 70. And so there's like these, these circles, the, of. Well, I think, I think the other maybe, um, I don't know, critical piece of information here is that the church is typically small. So you can say that, oh, megachurches are great and everybody wants a megachurch, but, but that's just not how it's worked out. That's not how churches are. I want to say 95% of churches in America are, are fewer than 500 people and something like 70% uh, will have less than a hundred people on a Sunday morning. So, you know, maybe we're just so terrible at doing the church and, and God is just so inept at putting this thing together and scattering them and building them that he really wants every church to be a mega church. And he, he's just failing miserably and we are failing miserably at that goal. Or another possibility is that he is actually sovereign. And in spite of our ineptitude and in leading everything, uh, he's, he's just fine with the way that the church has, has worked itself out. So it's not just, it's not just in America too, it's in the world. You know, I'm in Europe right now. And if, if there's a church in Europe that has 200 people, it's, that is huge. That's considered really big. Um, most churches that we interact with are 50 people, you know, or, or even fewer. So of course, what that does tell me is it, it creates these two sort of complexes in, in the people that lead those churches and, and to a lesser degree, the people that are part of them. 
one is a kind of inferiority complex. You know, it, it, it makes them think we're just not a very good church. You know, we're, we're, good churches are bigger and we're, we're, we're obviously rubbish at this because we only have 50 people. Um, and so they, they, they carry a kind of inferiority complex. Everything they read, everything they see about church leadership and church stuff is coming from people with bigger churches. That, that's how you get a platform. That's how you get a deal, book deal or whatever. That's how you get heard. And, and, it, and I, know, I know many of those people, they don't mean for this knock-on effect to happen, but it's damaging. You know, it's actually, in Jesus's words, do not cause one of these little ones to stumble. You know, that word in Greek is scandalize, to be scandalized. In other words, to, to look at their smallness and say, uh, we're, we're trash, you know, we're, we're just terrible at it. Now, some small churches are rough, you know, they're, they, they have problems. I'm not, I'm not saying that isn't the case. I'm just saying being small doesn't mean they're not a beautiful, effective expression of the church. And so we're not just talking about now, and we're not just talking about in places like Europe, we're talking about all over the world, and we're talking about for, for 2,000 years, the church has essentially expressed itself in smaller units. It's, it's, it's how it has happened. It's how it has worked itself out. So sociologically, maybe anthropologically, don't we have to kind of admit something there? Don't we have to say, gosh, maybe if you have 50 people, you're just right. You know, 50 people or less. It's like, that's kind of, so, so even in statistics, you would say, I think if something is maybe 95% the case, you would say it's statistically significant or st statistically reliable. So you, in other words, you can say it is that, you know, you, you're allowed to say if it's 98% or 95%, you're allowed to say it is that. So in other words, I'm, I would make the argument that church is small. That's how God has designed it. That's how God, that's how it has played itself out in history. Now, are, are, is it capable for those things to be networked together into bigger things and bigger units for, for, for great, gain of course yes and we also should be thinking about how do we network small things together especially in the 21st century um but that's you know i so i i, I would i would want to make an argument for the 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 validity the veneration of small expressions of the church and scripture um and just small things in general as an expression of the kingdom but then also anthropologically we have to say this is just how it's it this is how it looks. This is just what the church actually is. So rather than running around with an inferiority complex, which many people do. Oh, and by the way, the other thing that small churches do, the other kind of syndrome they're uh, susceptible to is a, like a Napoleon complex. It's the opposite. You know, you have these little churches with 50 people who are led by a person that thinks he's God or and, and I say he purposely, it's typically a male person who sort of thinks they're super important and running around as if they're as if they're running some big institution. They think that the CEO of 40 people um, and that that Napoleon complex that like sort of we're so small and it makes us it makes us sort of bad actors in the lives of these few people. Both those are a problem, you know, to, to both feel inferior or to feel like way overestimate yourself um, isn't good. Instead, if we could just say, well, what if, what if sort of the normal natural size of a church, I'm just making this up, but let's just say is 50 people. Like that's like the proper size of a church. Um, then 
Gosh, I don't know. You, then you don't have to feel bad about that. You feel lovely. You feel like, yeah. And then, and then you can focus on other things like discipleship, like reaching people, like deciding whether or not your, your 50 people are healthy. And part of maybe what makes a 50 person church healthy is not if they can go from 50 to 500, but it's, can they help to, uh, generate, send, recreate, multiply 50 more of those size churches? You know, um, you know, growth in the church is also something that maybe we've misunderstood because we think bigger is better. So we think growth is just adding people. And there is, you know, Tommy, there is this in the church planning world, there is this kind of rags to riches narrative. They talk about we started in my living room, you know, and now we're and now we're two thousand people. And 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 that narrative is baked in with bad ideas, you know, that, that, that was that, that's the proof that of God's grace and God's showing up and whatever. And, and of course that's, that in many cases is an is a amazing story, but, but really that's our story. If instead we say, oh, we started in my living room and we're still in my living room all these years later, but 50, a hundred churches have been started out of my living room, you know, which that's also my story, Tommy. Like when we when we look back at almost twenty years of leading a house church or microchurch in my house, let's just say 15. 15, like intentionally knowing what we we're doing every single week, having people in our living room, in a meal, and scripture, and prayer, and intentional discipleship, and being in each other's lives, and just making a welcome space for whoever wanted to come. If you didn't know Jesus, or if you did. We count about 60 microchurches that have been started out of our living room. And some of them, wow. many of them you would know, and they've gone on to start many others or do other things or become nonprofits or whatever. Uh, and they're not just all house churches. It's not, it's, not, it's not cellular. It's not multiplying the same idea. It's people have different ideas. God has called people to do different things. But that living room was a place where they met Jesus. And I want to say at some level, they, they went in thinking, wow, this is really uh, kind of intimidating and walk out going, well, that, that doesn't seem that hard. Like, that's it. Like, that's all you have to do. I could do that. And man, that's, that's growth, right? That's, for, that's, well, both are, I mean, you, you can, ha you can go from 50 to 500 and that is a kind of growth. It's not bad. It's a good thing. But then this sort of like, I don't know, sharing what you have, this belief that God could use me. And actually the people, the people around me and where he's put me are important to him. And he might want to use me to reach those people. And now that I see that it's not that difficult. And now that I see that, that regular people can do it. And now that I see that you don't need money or ordination or anything like that to do it, maybe I'll give it a shot. You know, maybe I'll give it a try. I was just in Bristol, England last year. And I met a guy just randomly at something, an event I was speaking at. I met a guy who's a professional He's, I, I don't, I'm not going to say it quite right, but he's a professional handstander. He stands on his hands. That's what he does. It's like a, it's like a circus thing or something. It's, it's a thing. He teaches people how to do it. He's, he can, he can, I don't know what it is for a long, for 10 minutes or something, he can stand on his hands. And I started to ask him about the people that do that. And he kind of began to 
unveil this this really quirky community of people, almost like almost like circus people and acrobats and whatever. And I said, well, is, you know, are, is there much faith in that community or, you know, are any of them believers or, and he was like, oh, no, no one, no one is. And I was like, what is your heart like for the, for those people? He said, my heart breaks for these people. I'm like, well, then you're the one, you're the one, aren't you? And it, it, you could just see the light come on in his eyes. Like I am the one I'm meant to go there. I'm sent there. He can keep coming every single, he can come to conferences. He can keep coming to his church on Sunday or whatever. But the truth is God has uniquely placed him among people that do handstands and he's the one, he's the one. And if he could see an expression of the church, which he could touch and reach and uh, imagine, I mean, it's, 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 it's an exercise in imagination. I could see myself doing this all of a sudden the world has opened up for him. And now you see growth in a place that you're not leading in an environment that you haven't created. That's growth too. You know, and I, I feel like that's maybe a more, um, I don't know, a, a more endearing story, you know, to talk about. We, we never, I mean, my house church never really was ever beyond maybe 35 people. I'd say, I'd say at its height, it may have been 35 to 40 people. There may have been spikes, moments like that. But at its lowest, it would have still been maybe 18 people. So, so somewhere kind of fluctuating in there through all these years. Uh, and, and by the way, no, no intentional strategy to multiply or send zero. And maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe I'm, I'm not saying like emulate that, but zero intentional strategy for that. It's just like a place where people met Jesus. And, and, and yes, we would have said, Hey, if God's put something on your heart, God, and God does put that on people's heart when they, when they start following him go do it and, and celebrate that leaving that sort of sending part, you know? Yeah. Oh man. Wow. That's uh, so much in that. Cause I think when we're talking and kind of going back to maybe the way that we began the conversation a little bit about numbers and growth is that I, I do think that there is a sense and there is a tension that we walk as, you know, people who follow Jesus that, on one hand, you know, there is the, the, the posture of humility of like, you know, kind of like John the Baptist, like, I, I don't want more than what God has given me. And I don't want less than what I'm supposed to have. And so I want, I want to be in the right spot. And yet, at the same time, what we see in scripture, as we do look at Jesus, he does, to a certain extent, care about numbers. When you know, he heals 10 people, and one person comes back, he wonders, where's the rest? When there is uh, kind of the the parable of the talents and this kind of reckoning of what have you done with what you've been given? Uh, were you able to multiply it, make more of it? And so I think there's a sense that, you know, numbers are important a little bit, but yeah, I guess what you're kind of challenging is the way that we understand those metrics, like metrics and growth doesn't just happen uh, additionally in our uh, churches or our congregations or whatever Sunday service that we have, but it can be multiplicative. It can be exponential. It can be more than just what we've, what we've typically thought of. Yeah. It's that, I don't know if you've read Simon Sinek's newer book called the infinite game, but he, he gets this idea from James Cars, who would have been a professor of religion, I think at New York university. Some years ago, he wrote a book called the finite and infinite games. And Cars's argument was that 
human beings play these two kinds of games. Finite games are, you know, they're board games, they're sport. They have a beginning, they have an end, they have rules. It's a competitor. You have a, you have a, someone you're trying to beat. You know what it means to score, to win. Uh, you're clear on that. Um, and then he says, but we actually, we also play what he calls infinite games. Infinite games have no beginning uh, and no clear ending. Uh, the goal of a finite game is to win. The goal of an infinite game is to simply keep playing. It's to simply keep playing. Um, so, you know, I think in the church, th th that concept is really, really important for me, illuminating for me, because I think in the church, when we get it wrong, it's because we're, we're seeing the church as a finite game. We're trying wow. to, we're imagining that the church is a finite game, something to win, uh, something to be better than the church on the street or the other church. We're just constantly comparing ourselves. We're imagining that it's some sort of competition. Uh, and we know, we know in our hearts and even theologically, that's nonsense. Of course it isn't that, but we still act like that. We still, we still measure ourselves by, and by those terms. But I think the more we understand that the church is an infinite game, the infinite game, actually, that, that the greatest infinite game that human beings can play, um, then we can see instead that we're, we're part of something that started way before us, that will go on after us. And, and to see progress in the infinite game is different than a finite game. So if I'm playing a finite game, then I just want people to come to my church. You know, I, I want to see more people in the seats next week than I saw this week. And then I can feel good about myself and I can think I'm winning. Um, and I want to read books and, and hear people talk about ways I can do that, you know, outperform the competition. But if I'm, but if I, if, I, if in my, if I'm in my soul, I'm really playing an infinite game, then actually what I want to see is God's glory cover the earth as the waters covers the sea. You know, I actually just want to see his kingdom come. I want to see people released and sent. I want to serve. Uh, and I'm not saying that like for, for effect or for hyperbole. I mean that like it, it is, it is an origin question. It's like, what is going on inside of you? What is the motive behind why you, you, you have entered into ministry at all? And, and when we get this right, when we realize this, this is an infinite thing, this started way before me, it will go on way after me. And in fact, Kars, Kars would say that the great joy of, of the infinite game is not being able to see it completed. You know, it's like passing it on to somebody else. By the way, you, you need to see Mr. McGorium's Wonder Emporium because again, that's in my heart, that's in my mind because of the, the whole story is a story about this, this sort of magical guy who's lived 243 years and he's, he's, he's coming to his last day. You know, he said, he said he bought a hundred pairs of shoes and he's on his last one. They're about to be worn out. So he's done. And he's trying to pass it on to this young woman, this, this, emerging leader she doesn't see herself as magical and he wants her to see that and it's this incredibly touching scene uh near the end when he talks about king lear and the you know shakespeare's culmination of his life is just to say that he dies he dies like the greatest literary masterpiece and takes shakespeare to just these these two words you know he dies and that's the end of his life it comes to this kind of quiet end because it's being passed on you know, because, because it's the end of one life, but it's not the end of this greater story. And of course, that's what he wants for his toy store, store this, this wonder emporium is for her to take up that mantle 
and to see herself as a worthy successor, you know, to him, to this next thing. And there's something really beautiful about people that understand that and lead the church that way. You know, there's, they're way more open-handed. And so again, I, I want the church to grow. I, I want to see everyone know and hear about Jesus and respond to him. But also what that, that drive actually leads me to want to say yes to smaller expressions in the church, because I think that we, more people can play, you know, the, the, the infinite game, actually. They're meant to be playing the infinite game. Uh, and fewer of us play the finite game. And when, we, when church has become a finite game, Tommy, it's, it's ugly. You know, it, it, it brings out the worst in us. And we create platforms and stages which corrupt the people that we put on them. You know, damage the people that we put on them in the end. It's not it's not good for the audience. It's not good for the 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 celebrity person in the end. It's just a matter of time before that, you know, damages them. And it takes everybody out of the game. You know, it's you've heard me talk about this before. It turns turns church into spectacle. And when when the church is a spectacle, then what it means to be a part of it is to simply spectate. It just means your job is just to sit there and watch. And the more people we can get to just sit there and be passive and watch, the better the church is. Well, how, how does that make any sense? You know, it should be the opposite. It should be the, the more people that actually are frustrated by simply being asked to watch that think, well, this isn't, this isn't it. This can't be it. You know, I read the Bible. When I read the Bible, it's not a bunch of people just sitting and watching. It's, it's, you will do greater things than these, you know? Um, so that yearning for action, for, for taking responsibility in the sense for the kingdom is, is when the church is at its best. Wow. What, what is important, and I think as we, unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of time left, um, is I, I hear, you know, I think one of the things that I've always loved about you know, or have admired about you is the way that you have empowered people to say yes to Jesus and to, you know, do the thing that they felt like, you know, God has called them to do. I was reflecting on the fact that, you know, almost, well, no, and I was over 10 years ago, but 10 years ago on October 31st, we sat down at a five guys and you told me to go on staff with InterVarsity and then come work for the underground. And to think like 10 years later, how much of that has actually happened and how much of that has kind of come to pass and how crazy that whole thing is. That was your birthday, and, right? That's your birthday? Yeah. Or was it? Yeah, yeah. indeed. Um, and just the, you know, in reflecting on even your books and your writing, you know, I think it's Underground Church. You talk about, and, and we haven't talked about this a whole lot in this podcast, interestingly enough. And I think maybe there's something right about that. Just like, this concept of mobilization, like in order to reach everyone, you have to have something that allows everyone to be sent and deployed in some way. Uh, every person has the ability to be uh, a church planter in their own right. And I think it's in micro churches you talk about, and kind of like you mentioned that, you know, the church maybe was never supposed to feel out of reach to us or this mm -hmm. thing that, that feels far away. Uh, and I just think, microchurches are such a such an interesting beautiful expression of of god's heart and what happens when people just say yes and and permission giving in that space and so 
I thank you so much for that. I think the maybe where I'll end is uh, I don't know maybe for people who struggle to see their thing as their small thing, the small thing that they're doing as the church. I just wonder what like advice or encouragement or thing you would have to say to that person um, who maybe is just like I don't know. I don't. It's just this thing that I do. What would you say to them? I don't know, maybe, maybe what Jesus said, you know, look at this, look at this mustard seed, you know, look how small it is. It's, um, it doesn't just fit in the palm of your hand. It's a, it's like small, smallest seed that there is actually. Um, and then look at what it does. Look at what it produces. Uh, this, the biggest of all plants or, you know, these great leaves, they create shade and sustenance and so on. <clears throat> I'd say, you know, to imagine that God is the kind of person who is impressed by bigness, you know, by human achievement or something, uh, is probably doing him a disservice, you know, <laughs> um, but instead to realize that God is, is great. And part of what makes him great is that he can see these small things that we overlook for what they really are, which is little miracles, you know, little miracles that the smallest thing can become the biggest thing is about change. It's about transformation. And in the end, it's something only he can do. So I would just say, look, if you, if you imagine yourself to be small, if you think, ah, you're probably not very good at this or it's not that great, then I, I just think you're perfect. You're exactly what he wants. I'm not saying you shouldn't improve. I'm not saying there's things you can't do better, but I'm saying that you have the affection of God rests on you in the small thing you're doing. And, you know, you, you kind of alluded to it a second ago, but this is the world we're in now. You know, there's like, I think of Seth Godin's idea of the mass market. There, there is no such thing as the mass market anymore. We can't just create one church that reach, reaches everyone. It's not the way that we're organized socially anymore. We're organized by these little strange overlapping enclaves, you know, pe people that people that like Mr. M Missional Christians that like Mr. Magorium's Wonder Emporium. That's like a niche. It's a group, you know, skateboarding, ska liking Lord of the Rings fans. That's a niche, you know, and, and until, until we start understanding that this is, the way the world is organizing itself. He said, well, that's, that's what I am. I'm one of those people, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a skeet shooting brony or something like that's, that's a, that's a small niche of people. <laughs> and if that's you, you realize, um, well, then you're perfectly sized. You know, you, 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 you can actually begin to think about being a part of this infinite game, this infinite story. And, and that's the thing about the infinite game you don't have to win it. You just have to play your part. You have to play your part. You just want to be a part of it somehow. And, and if you're small and if you're feeling a little bit inferior, I'd say, let that go. That's, that's, that's probably just a lie from the enemy. And you're not seeing the beauty and the strength of the thing that you're actually doing. 
Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks for giving us your time and your wisdom. Uh, if you are listening and you're wondering what's next, what do I, where do I go from here? I would encourage you to check out some of the works that Brian has put together, the Underground Church book. Uh, you can definitely look at that and get a sense of, you know, both on a on a micro level, but also on a macro level. How does something like a, a, a microchurch and an ecosystem for microchurches exist? I would definitely point you to that. But then I also encourage you to check out Brian's most recent work on microchurches themselves. It is called Microchurches. It's a book about a smaller way. That is uh, what we have been talking about. And so feel free to check that out. You could also go to tampaunderground.com slash toolkit, where we have a handful of resources that we think every microchurch leader should have in their arsenal. And so feel free to check that out. Thank you so much for listening in. And until next time, this has been Microchurches.